If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do have your Bibles, please always bring them with you to worship. If you don't have one, there's one in the back of the pew in front of you. Take that Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. While you're turning there, uh, I want to ask, have you ever really stopped and thought about how human beings are drawn to some things? We can put a positive spin on this and say that we have so much compassion and concern that we just kind of seek out persons and and, and situations that uh, may not initially involve us because we're concerned and we want to be able to minister to others. We could just say that we're curious. We'll be neutral and say, what's curious? Curious can be a good thing or curious can hurt the cat, not be such a good thing. So we'll just leave it neutral and say that we're, we're curious as people. Or you can be a little more blunt and just flat out say that we're snoopy or we're nosy about things sometimes, right? And we go sticking it in where we where may not belong even on occasion. But however you paint it, the truth is that human beings are sometimes mesmerized and drawn to certain things like moths to a flame. When I lived in Louisville, uh, we would often hear the radio DJs say, northbound I-65 is backed up because of rubbernecking on, in the southbound lanes uh, looking at the accident. So they were saying there's a traffic jam. The lanes are clear, but people are slowing down to look at the wreck in the other side, backing up traffic behind them. And then are you familiar with the term bandwagon fans? Do you know what those are? Yeah, these are people that when a sports team or a group is doing well, man, they jump in and they start following and go, woo, yeah, we love them. And then they disappear when that team is mediocre or bad. It's disgusting. Disgusting. For decades, decades, I get excited during college football season when the Kentucky Wildcats start playing. And they do awesome up until the start of the SEC part of their schedule. And then we start counting down the days for basketball season, which generally relieves that tension and the hurt and the pain. But even in our off basketball seasons, I'm there. I'm with those guys. No bandwagon or fair weather fans in my household. We're with them. Up seasons and down seasons. But perhaps the ultimate illustration and example of our tendency to follow the crowds in things comes in the area of merchandising. Please don't raise your hands because I don't want to embarrass anyone and this will embarrass some of you. But how many of you at some point in your life purchased a pet rock? Some of your no hands, no hands. What about the infamous chia pet? Cabbage Patch Dolls, anyone? Rubik's Cube. Something with WWJD printed on it. Not many people followed it, but millions of millions of people bought the merchandising. Beanie Babies. The Thigh Master. <laughs> I see those elbows. Mm. And what about now the infamous silly bands? Woo! How do we live life without silly bands? Now, how many of you are collecting dust on some of those things right now in your house or in boxes somewhere? 
You see, following after the next big thing isn't just limited to modern day either. It's been happening for centuries. And this morning in the Gospel of John, we see this phenomenon occur just prior to Jesus' ministry. There was something new, somebody big on the scene, and people went to, and people flocked to this person. And as we go through the Gospel of John, we see this same thing happen in Jesus' ministry. Large crowds come, and then things happen, and they begin to kind of fall away and, and turn and leave Jesus. And we say, well, what in the world was going on? Well, we'll see that as we study through the Gospel of John. But in John 1, verses 1 through 5 last week, we met the Word. The Word who came to make God known. And we saw that the Word was God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. Well, this morning we're going to meet the herald, the one who came to announce the coming of the Word who was going to make God known. So in John chapter 1, verse 6, we read this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, the description of this man is very different from the word that we talked about last week. Last week, I told you there are two separate Greek words for the verb was. One word describes something that has always existed. The word had always existed. The word was God. In the beginning was the word always existed. The other verb for the word was describes something that wasn't in existence and then came to be. It wasn't there then. It's there. And the second usage is what is used in verse 6 when it says, There was a man sent from God. It means there was no man, no person in existence. And then a man was created whose name was John, and he was sent from God. So he was fulfilling a task, doing a job that God had given to him. And it's in stark contrast to the Word who was God. So John and the Word are very different in essence. One is the same as God and was God. The other is a man who simply came to do what God told him to do. And verse 7 tells us this is the case because it says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. We talked last week about the Word was the light. He was bearing witness about the light that all may believe through him. That all may believe the light because of John's message. Not that he was salvation, but that because of his message about the light, people would come to the light and believe in him. Verse 8 says, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So clearly the apostle John makes a distinction between this man John and the word who was Jesus Christ. So as we look at this man named John, I think there are two questions that we should ask. First, because he came to bear witness to the light, we need to ask, was he effective? Was he an effective witness for the light, an effective witness for Jesus Christ? Secondly, we can ask, if the answer is yes, he was effective, then what did he do that made him effective? Because if we can learn those lessons, then we, because we're called to bear witness to the light as well, we can learn those lessons and then we can begin to do those things in our life. We can follow his example and be a witness to the light. So let me answer the first question. Was John effective? Yes, he was an effective witness for Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus had to say about John, who would come to be known as John the Baptist because he was baptizing people. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now think about Abraham, Moses, Joseph, 
David, Solomon, some, some of the prophets. I mean, think about all these famous men of the Bible, these men of faith, these servants of God that we know of from Scripture. All of those men and every other man in history, none was greater than John the Baptist. And this comes from the mouth of the only one who was greater than John the Baptist, Jesus Christ himself. That's a pretty significant compliment, a pretty significant statement about who John was and what he came to do. Now, in your note sheet, I listed scripture references from the gospel about John so you can read about his life and his ministry and his messages and the events that transpired. I encourage you to do that because John was a special man. He had a very special job that he came to do. But the second question that we ask is this. Can we learn things from John that we could model in our lives? And again, the answer is yes. And the lesson that we learn from John is very simple. It's very straightforward. And it is simply this. Lift up Jesus. Lift up Jesus and lower yourself. Lift up Jesus, lower yourself. That's what John did with his life. And as John did that, as he lifted up Jesus Christ, people were drawn to. And people then responded to the message that John proclaimed. You see, he was the first real prophet that had been in Israel for over 400 years. There had been a really quiet spell of prophets coming and delivering messages from the Lord. John had had a miraculous birth. Then he disappeared into the wilderness, and then he came out of the wilderness. He was wearing camel skin clothing. He was eating locusts and honey, and he was warning people, preaching a message of, of repenting from their sins and turning back to God. And he warned people from the palace to the street corner, telling everyone, you are sinners, and you need to turn from your sin and turn back to God. And crowds flocked to hear this camel-wearing, locust-and-honey-eating denouncer of sin, they, they couldn't get enough of him. Now, if you want to draw a crowd, you could start wearing camel hair clothes, quit shaving, get as hairy as you can, maybe start eating locusts and honey, and people are going to stare, are they not? <laughs> you, you'll garner some attention, but maybe draw a crowd to look and point a little bit. Or here's another thought. I've been reading this book, Radical by David Platt. We started a discussion uh, group on it this last Wednesday as one of our DU classes. And the basic challenge of this book is how should we live? How should we live if we believe the Bible is true and we try to follow the commands and demands of Jesus Christ upon our lives? How should we live? And what does it look like for us to follow Jesus' commands and demands upon our lives? And church, I have to tell you this morning, this book has just about wrecked me. I can't get it out of my mind. It has unsettled me and shaken me to the core. And I've been praying and, and, and discussing, considering how we as a church may work through this corporately in worship and in small groups together. So stay tuned about that. But, but the question that I'm wrestling with in this book and that I want to present to you this morning as we look at the life of John is do you think people would notice if you took seriously Jesus' call 
upon your life? Would they see a difference? What would it look like for you to take up your cross daily and die to yourself just like Jesus Christ told us we are supposed to do as his followers? Would people see a difference? Would they notice if you lived your life that way? What if you told the coach of your kids' travel teams that you're not going to be available on Wednesdays or Sunday events because you're committed to partnering with your church to build your child's faith that's going to last through their sport-playing years into the rest of their lives and for all of eternity? And to do that, you realize you need to be together with the body of Christ to worship and to serve and to build community with other believers. Crazy stuff, I know. Teens, what have you determined? That Jesus Christ was serious when he called you to a life of purity and holiness. And you determined that what that looks like for you in your life to be pure and to be holy is to go no further in your dating relationships than showing the sign of affection of simply holding hands. That you decide you're going to save your very first kiss For the time when that pastor in your wedding ceremony says, you may kiss your bride. And one of you communicated that to all future boyfriends and girlfriends and said, you know what? I don't want to put myself in the situation that one thing will lead to another and compromise my purity and my holiness before Jesus Christ. And I know what some of you are thinking. That's ridiculous. You're nuts. It's crazy, Curtis. This is 2010. Hello. I know. Crazy thoughts. And you're right. Jesus probably meant something different when he said these words. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves sons or daughters more than me is not worthy of me. Fill in your own blank. Whoever loves, what is your blank? More than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And surely somewhere in the Greek to English translation... Jesus had to mean something else when he said these words. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's got to be an alternate interpretation. Because you see, that's what Jesus did when these crowds flocked to him. He spoke things like this. And you know what people said? That's too much. I'm not going to do that. So what does that look like for us? I mean, surely there's got to be a different way to to rationalize this and work this out in our minds because Jesus wants us to be happy, right? I mean, isn't that somewhere in the Gospels? Blessed are the happy because they're supposed to be. It's somewhere in there, right? I mean, I can't can't pull a reference, but I know it's got to be in there. 
or we think, well, to be an effective witness for Jesus, then I've got to have a nice house and nice clothes and nice cars, and I've got to be well-liked, and I've got to be popular, and I've got to be respected. I've got to be like everybody else around me so I can be an effective witness for Jesus. Well, I have a question. If that's the case, and, and we've got to look like them and talk like them and act like them to witness to them, let me ask you, when was the last time you witnessed to somebody? Because if we need those things to be better witnesses and we're not witnessing and sharing the gospel, then are those things helping us or are those things hurting us? I think we've got to ask ourselves, have they really become idols? Have those things become false little G-gods that we have come to worship in place of Jesus Christ? I don't know. Some of you are thinking, man, Curtis, if I did those things, people are going to look at me funny. They will talk about me. They'll, they'll probably be driven away from Christ because I'm too different. I'm too weird. I'm too fanatical about Jesus. I mean, let's face it, Curtis, nobody wants to follow that Jesus. And I wept when I typed that sentence this week. No one wants to follow that Jesus. And I did because you know what? You're right. Nobody does want to follow that Jesus. Nobody does. But the truth is this. The Jesus who spoke those words and who makes these demands of his followers. And hear me, these are demands. They're not suggestions. They're not recommendations. They're not ideas. These are the demands of Jesus Christ upon his followers. That is the only Jesus in the Bible. He's the only one. So what's it going to look like for us to follow him in the way that he lays out for us? In John 12, this Jesus said this, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And Jesus was speaking of his crucifixion as the way of salvation, that all men would be drawn to him so they could come to have a relationship with God. But we should also note that that when we lift Jesus up in our lives and we live radically different from the people of this world because of our life and because of our witness and because of our testimony, that Jesus will draw people to himself through our lives and through our example. That's what John the Baptist did. He lifted Jesus Christ up as his role as prophet and herald and messenger. He prepared the way for the long-awaited Messiah. He lived a life that was different, and people saw that and were drawn to it. John spoke a message that was different, that was bold, that was in your face, and people were drawn to it. They couldn't stay away. And when they arrived and when they came to hear this prophet, this radical man come out of the wilderness doing all these crazy things, what did they see? What did they hear? They saw a man who lifted up Jesus Christ and who lowered himself to the point that John thought less of himself than Jesus did. And you know what? That's the point that we should all be in. We should think less of ourselves than Jesus does because Jesus loved us enough to die for us. He thinks highly of us. But he wants to use us, and he wants the best for us, and he wants us to be on mission for him. The lesson from John's life was indeed, lift up Jesus, lower yourself. And so his preaching and his baptizing drew large crowds, and those large crowds drew the attention of the religious leaders. 
And being the first largely popular religious leader in over 400 years, it caused people to begin wondering and saying, could this be the Messiah? So people were saying, is John, is he the Messiah who's come to deliver us from oppression and to give us political dominance that the Messiah is going to bring? And we'll talk about this as we get through the Gospel of John uh, because there's a misunderstanding about the Messiah. There's a major disconnect between the Messiah the people were looking for and the real Messiah who actually came. But this buzz about John caused the religious leaders who were normally at odds at each other, bickering about stuff, to to send a joint delegation to come and find out who this baptizer is, uh, find out his identity, and see who gave him permission and the authority to do what he was doing out in the wilderness because they knew we didn't tell him he could go and start this new ministry. And so they approach John in verse 19. They come and they ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John knew what they were thinking and he set the record straight right off the bat. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah who was to come. So it goes on and says uh, in verse 20, verse 21, they ask him then, what then are you Elijah? So they ask, are you Elijah? And they did that because in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. He didn't die. And so devout Jews expected that Elijah was going to return before the Messiah came because he didn't die so that he was still alive in heaven, that maybe he was going to return and preach and warn people about the coming Messiah based on the words of Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4. Elijah is described in 2 Kings chapter 1 as being a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. So you can see John shows up wearing camel uh, camel skin clothes and preaching in the wilderness. Uh, Elijah was also a very fiery, confrontational guy, spoke to the kings and the nation of Israel, telling them to repent and turn back to God and forsake their wicked ways. And so uh, you can see these parallels here. So they say, are you Elijah? John very simply answers, I am not. No elaborate discussion. I am not. So then they continue on in verse 21. Are you the prophet? Now the prophet that's spoken of of here comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18 where Moses spoke of a prophet who would come speaking the words of God just as he had done. And there was no real clear consensus on who the prophet was going to be. Some were saying, well, the prophet will be the Messiah. Others were saying, no, this prophet described in Deuteronomy 18 will will be a forerunner coming to prepare the way uh, for the Messiah who would come. And others are like, no, the prophet's just going to be a a prophet like Jeremiah, Isaiah, just someone coming and speaking uh, about the one who is to come. But Peter and Stephen later in the New Testament say that, no, the prophet was indeed Jesus Christ. But John, not knowing that he wasn't the Messiah, uh, you know, the prophet in whatever way was there, said, no, I'm not the prophet. Very short, sweet to the point, no, I'm not the prophet. So basically, they throw their hands up in the air and say, well, who are you? Verse 22, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John very humbly says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. So John simply says, I'm a nobody. I'm a voice. The voice of one. Doesn't even give himself a name. I'm the voice of one saying, get ready for the Messiah. 
And because John admits that he's nobody special, then they follow up and say, well, tell us about your baptism. Who do you think you are, if you say you're nobody special, to be baptizing people? And here's the confusion on this. People who were not Jews, because the Messiah had promised a spiritual cleansing, when they came to convert to Judaism, they were baptized as a sign of showing that they were spiritually cleansed, and now they were right. They were part of the Jewish uh, faith, and so they were part of God's people. But John was coming, and he's baptizing people who are already Jews. So basically, they're saying, my sin has now moved me outside of God's covenant. I'm no longer a part of God's kingdom, and I need to be baptized. So John's baptizing Jews, and they're going, we're confused. We're already in God's kingdom, but you're baptizing them like we're not. Because their baptism from sin represented they were turning from sin and looking to the real Messiah who would come and deliver them and make them right with God. And so they didn't understand how this was was working out. And John states to them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That was the lowest job for the lowest servant in the household. And John says, I'm not even worthy of doing that for the one who comes after me. Because he's going to have a greater baptism. He's going to baptize you in the spirit. You will be clean spiritually. You will be made right before God on the inside. Not just cleansed and washed symbolically on the outside. I want to wrap up this morning by reading a couple of testimonies of things that people are beginning to do in their lives. As they respond to the call of Jesus Christ. As David Platt has set him forth in his book Radical. And then we're going to pray, and I want, to, I want you to spend some time this morning asking God what it looks like for you to put his demands into practice in your life. I said earlier that the vast majority of Christians in the American church especially have the mentality that no one wants to follow the Jesus who makes radical demands of his followers. I think the question then is this. If you're not following that Jesus the Jesus of the Bible? What Jesus are you following? What vision or or what version of Jesus have you created in your own mind? What lies have you believed about this other Jesus who wants you to be happy and comfortable and content and at ease with things of the world instead of the things of heaven? I mean, let me ask you, do you believe that people will die and be punished eternally if they don't come to faith in Jesus Christ? If we believe that, how have we rationalized away our personal responsibility for sharing the gospel with people so that doesn't happen? So they don't experience that eternal punishment and torment? What excuse could we possibly give for not telling them the most important message they will ever hear? Church, have we traded contentment and fulfillment in Jesus Christ for the American dream? I mean, how else would we explain what statistics tell us? That we live on 110% of what we make. For those of you who are math challenged like myself, that means we're in debt. We're spending more than we make. We're in debt up to our eyeballs. And yet we're giving less than 3% to our local churches that we're a part of. 
and we go out with amazing regularity and spend between $15 and $50 a meal on food in a restaurant while over 2 billion people in our world live on less than $2 a day. Your pets probably live on more than $2 a day. 2 billion people, less than $2 a day, and 30,000 children a day die from starvation and preventable diseases. And we are scarfing down the food in our restaurants. Fat, happy, content, and clueless. Because we don't want to get a clue. It makes us uncomfortable. Church, what's happened to us? I look in the mirror and I'm asking, Curtis, what's happened to you? And what am I going to do about it? And we're praying and we're talking about what that's going to look like for our family. John was a radical and people flocked to him. When they saw him, what did they see? When they heard him, what did they hear? They saw a man who lifted up Jesus and lowered himself. What will it look like for you to do that? I logged on to the, uh, to the radical experiment. And I listed the, note sheet, the uh, address on your note sheet there if you want to dare look in and read how people are responding. And I read these following testimonies. A member of the Air Force, after being confronted with the demands of Christ from the book, said, All of a sudden, I felt very sick at the way I've been living my life, living in pursuit of the American dream, living to lift myself up. So about six days ago, my wife and I, over the phone, decided to start selling our worthless possessions. In the last five days, we sold the following, two TVs, an iPhone, a computer, a TV stand, some curtains, and our new car. We also made a commitment to start the adoption process when I get home and hopefully add to the four boys God has already blessed us with. And there's more to this guy's story, so you can log on and read that. Someone else wrote in and said, My husband and I are getting rid of cable for the radical experiment. We feel there's not much wholesome viewing anyway, and we'd rather use that time to serve, to be in his word, or to do other things that are more important. I was a little reluctant to the idea at first, but after a week or so with no cable, I haven't really missed it. When we called the cable people to cancel our subscription, we were asked why we were canceling, and my husband was able to tell them what we were going to use the money for, a great opportunity to tell others about what's most important to us. An engineer wrote in to say that he had resigned his job, put his house on the market, and he and his family were moving to Colorado Springs so he could work for, use his skills working for a ministry feeding the poor in Africa. They raised enough money in their first family yard sale to go on his first mission trip to Zambia to help feed and minister to the people there. And this was submitted on May 31st, 2010. So it says, since the beginning of 2009, so we're talking just under 18 months here, God sent us out like crazy. My wife, two sons, ages 9 and 13, and I went to Arizona, Guatemala, Honduras, India, spent the summer in a tent sharing the gospel in New Brunswick, Canada, witnessing in Ohio, back to Arizona, Guatemala, and India, and soon our oldest son, 13, will go to the Dominican Republic himself to share the gospel. This is all for God's glory to make his name famous among the people of the world. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. People are adopting kids from other countries, selling their homes, living in mobile homes so they can pay for a couple from Africa to come and study in America and then go back home and spread the gospel in their country. They're starting nonprofit organizations and ministries to minister to kids. Fanatics, we say. 
Jesus freaks, lunatics. What are they doing? What are they thinking? Or you may be thinking, well, that call may be for some, Curtis, but it's not for me and my family. You know, there are points as I've been reading and praying through all this that I've looked in the Gospels to find the exception clause that gets me out of these demands and these commands on my life. And I haven't found it. So if you can find it, hey, let me know. I'd love to see it. But these are the demands that Jesus calls me to. And again, we say, but nobody's going to follow that Jesus. And you're right. Some people didn't. Many, as a matter of fact, walked away when the demands of Jesus became too high. But many did stay, and they surrendered their lives to Christ, and they sold out completely and gave everything to and for this Jesus. And I've been praying, God, I want to be one of those people. God, help me be one of those people. Help me be the person who says, I don't want anything more than I want you. And I'm working through this. John the Baptist was one of these radicals. He lifted up Jesus, he lowered himself. And do you know what happened to John? He was beheaded. He was executed because of his ministry, because of his faith in Jesus Christ and the stance that he took for him. What awaits you if you step out in faith and surrender your life to this radical Jesus and you get serious about obeying his demands on your life? I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know what's going to look like in my own life. But I'm praying that God will give me the strength to find out 